Um, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. As Adam said, Beyond Sunday is coming up. So excited about this um, and nervous. It's, it's the seven worst weeks of my career uh, each year as we move towards this uh, thing that we do each year. So very excited about that. So basically, if 100 of you could give $1,000 a piece, we're in. So that's just how it works. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Are you all ready? Let's talk city today. Um, We're talking about, um, well, let me back up. The series is called The Kingdom, um, and it's based on the Lord's Prayer, or at least a portion of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what we wanted to do for about five weeks is dig into that and discuss and learn what it means to pray uh, for the kingdom to come. What does that mean? Uh, the Lord's Prayer, by the way, is interesting. It begins with Jesus, you know, teaching us to pray. It begins with uh, this recognition of who God is. You know how it begins, like, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. You know, in other words, your name is above and beyond anything. You're the prime mover, creator. Uh, you're the prime cause. You're everything. And so the prayer begins, as most prayers should, with a recognition of position, like my position in the universe, which is uh, slightly below God. And so that's where it begins. Where, again, it's where it should always begin. But then following that, the whole Lord's Prayer is simply a run of requests. It says, your kingdom come, which we're talking about. It asks for bread or just daily needs. And then it asks for forgiveness. And then it says, lead us not into temptation or trials, like protect us from that. But if we happen to go in those, then the other request is deliverance from those. So uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer is essentially to ask God for these things. So the prayer in prayer in and of itself is request. That's, that's essentially what it is. But uh, uh, that didn't happen first hour. All right. Can you still hear me? All right. So... Uh, so the prayer is a series of asks to God, but the one we're looking at is uh, the first one, which says, your kingdom come, next slide, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Jesus taught most about this thing called the kingdom. Uh, when you dig through the gospels, you find the, the most dominant subject matter being the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, or the kingdom of God, as the rest of the gospels tend to call it. What is that? Well, last week uh, we gave sort of a working definition, but the kingdom is basically God's intended purpose for his creation, his ways of mercy and justice, salvation, peace, grace, etc. All those things about God, that's what his kingdom is. It's been mistaken, even by the disciples themselves, as some sort of physical nationalistic movement. And, uh, it, it's, and of course, the church has made many mistakes in that interpretation throughout history. But the kingdom, and the definition, Jesus sort of gives us the definition in between the bookends of the request. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and then right in the middle, in case we're confused, it's that God's will be done. So to pray for God's kingdom is to ask him that his will, parentheses, his ways, his mercy, justice, his peace, his salvation, all of that, that it happens. That it, so to pray the Lord's Prayer is to want what it's saying, essentially. It's to ask him to give those things. And so as a church family, 
which is what we are, um, we pray that prayer as well, that God's kingdom come uh, in our lives and also in the places where we live. Last week, we talked about what it means to love your neighbor and how we desire to see God's kingdom come in the lives of the people that we do life around and with. Uh, Next week, I'll talk about world, uh, what that looks like. That's actually going to be the Beyond Sunday sermon, but don't bring your offering. That's not for another three weeks. Again, $1,000 a piece. That's all we need. Um, Come on, you can do it. You don't need to pay rent. Uh, (laughs) What are they going to do? So uh, it's a bad economy. (laughs) You're like, $1,000 rent? Where are you living? That's a studio, isn't it? So, um, all right. Today, I want to talk about city. And it goes like this today. We, we desire to see God's kingdom bring transformation and renewal to our city. I drive this 1971 VW van. That's my ride. Some of you have been in it. Uh, I should give tours. That might raise money for Beyond Sunday. Um, but on the back, it's got stickers because you've got to have stickers on a van like that. And so let me just run through my stickers. I've got an album 88 sticker. Anybody? couple locals here. Okay. Uh, it's got the Apple sticker. Got to have the Apple sticker, right? Uh, there's a Columbia Theological Seminary sticker on there. Yawn. And then um, on the bottom, if you're looking at my van, on the bottom left-hand side of the window is one of our uh, Serve the City stickers. Yeah, there we go. So that's where we're heading here. Uh, every now and then I'll be out driving that thing around and um, someone will blow their horn at me, which isn't uncommon either, because uh, it only does 48 miles an hour. I was out here one day, and you know, if you live on Peachtree Road, I, I was getting from point A to point B, and somebody laid their horn on at me as like, really? Like, am I going anywhere on Peachtree Road? Are you going anywhere on Peachtree Road? No. Um, I mean, the horn, and we're all stopped. Like, where are you going? So, sorry, I'm just venting. Um, <laughs> But every now and then someone will blow their horn and speed pass, and I don't know who it is, but, you know, whatever, and thank you. And then, but uh, every now and then it'll be somebody that, that, you know, beep, beep, which is the polite horn, uh, and they'll go by, and I'll see on their bumper or their window one of those Serve the City stickers. So it's kind of like this solidarity, you know, brotherhood of stickers. Uh, My son, we bought him a Bible way back when, and uh, he came up from Sunday school uh, a few months ago, and I noticed that it was stuck on his, he had a service city sticker on his Bible. And I was like, right on, right? Because I've got one on my Bible, maybe that's where he got that from. Uh, but I've seen them on your Bibles, your journals, your cars, your notebooks, uh, and it's, it's pretty cool. But today, what I want to do is, because maybe we've never done this, but I want to talk about what that means. When we say serve the city, I want to talk about what that looks like for us as a church family Uh, And maybe you've been confused about that. What does that mean to serve the city? It is a good question. I think it's a valid question. And so I just want to dig through that. I had thought about changing it to love the city, uh, but we have like 5,000 of those stickers, so it's going to be a while before I change that, if we change it at all. But um, (laughs) so get your stickers today uh, so we can move forward. All right. To do so, let's, let's go to where you always go when you talk about stuff like this. Let's go to Jonah. Uh, chapter 4. The page number is on the screen um, for you. Now, I would say that I'm in this chapter at least once a year uh, as your preacher and pastor. 
Um, and that's okay, I don't feel bad about that, because it's a formative text for our church. And, um, and each time that I teach through it, there's something new surfaces for me anyway. And, um, and so I have some new things to share uh, with you. Some of this may be a replay as far as, you know, you're familiar with the story or, what, or whatever. But there, there's some new, things, uh, some new things in here as well. Um, now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, it is essentially the story of one man's struggle to see people the way God sees people, which is a struggle for all of us. But Jonah gets highlighted in the Old Testament for us, uh, and this is his main struggle. This is the storyline. It's of a guy who can't seem to see people the way God sees people with compassion and grace. Let me just add that so that you can uh, know where we're headed. If you look back in chapter one, by the way, uh, I want to show you how the story begins and ends. In chapter one, it says the Lord came to Jonah and Jonah's a prophet. You can read about him elsewhere in second Kings, but it's just very brief. And it says uh, that Jonah was spoken to by God and God tells him to go to Nineveh and he calls Nineveh a great city. That's how he begins. Now, if you look in chapter four, verse 11, if you're in the NIV, those are also the last two words, great city. So the story is about how God sees this place, Nineveh, as a great city. It's a gr- now, what does that mean? Uh, partly it means in number, a lot of people there. That's how we refer to cities, greatness and size. Uh, when we talk about places like London or New York or Paris, when we say great city, we mean they're big. We don't necessarily mean that they're great places to live or that we just love them. We just, part of what great means is just, it's immense, right? But also it means um, there's influence there, which you'll see in a moment. A great city has influence. Rome in history, great city. Why? Because it set the pace for the world. So it becomes a great city, not necessarily an admirable city, but it becomes a great city because of its influence. So numbers, influence, but there's a third component in here, as you'll see, and it has to do with the people. And uh, we'll get to that uh, in just a moment. So Jonah gets called by God to go to Nineveh and tell them, not just about him, but to bring them into a relationship with God. Now, Nineveh at the time was uh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it's located in Iraq. And uh, it's not a place that Israelites saw as a great place. One of the chief enemies to Israel as well. And like God does, he calls one of his own people to go there and to tell them about his grace and compassion. And on the harder end, his desire for them to live the right kind of life, to follow him, to trust him, salvation. And so um, that's kind of the backstory. Well, it's the story with the fish. You understand that. And each chapter is a back and forth. Uh, uh, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I don't think so. So he leaves and runs. And then God uses a fish uh, to get him back. And, and like you do, if you survive living in a fish for a couple of days, you know, you sort of do what God wants you to do. And, um, and then he goes to Nineveh. And what's interesting, and we'll get into the text here in just a second, He does what God calls him to do. He goes to Nineveh and he says the things that he's supposed to say. And miraculously, the people of Nineveh believe him. And many of them turn towards God. Jonah is frustrated with this. He doesn't want that. He did not want that to happen. So weird. 
And so we leave chapter 3, where the mercies of God have been embraced by the people of Nineveh. And then chapter 4 begins with the hatred of Jonah. Look at verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? What is he talking about there? He's saying that I knew this would happen. And here's the reason why. That is why I was so quick to flee from Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So as God's mercy was revealed and embraced by the people of Nineveh in chapter 3, Jonah's hatred was ignited by that, and that's what we have in chapter 4. Why? Well, one of the things is the thought for Jonah, the thought of being instrumental in bringing God's kingdom to one of Israel's greatest enemies was too much for Jonah, way too much for him to handle. So the worst case scenario here is that Jonah has a cold heart towards people, but the best case isn't any better. He misunderstands God's mercy. So whether the worst case or the best case, Jonah's in a bad spot. And so look at what he says to him. He tells God, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. Second book of the Bible, Exodus 34. Turn there very quickly. The first time we see this is in um, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And there it is. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So there it is. Psalm 103, if you would. Right in the middle of the Bible. The whole 103rd Psalm is about this, but in verse 7, it says, He made, his, uh, he made known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. And here we go again. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And that appears all throughout the Old Testament. And if you take a journey through the Old Testament just looking for that phrase, you're going to see it come up over and over and over again. And for the most part, for Israel, that was a creed about God. And so Jonah prays to God, and he says these words to him, but this is not as a compliment to God or praise. It's an indictment. That's why he says to him, is this not what I was talking about earlier in the story that I knew that if I went to Jonah and did or to Nineveh and did what you asked me to do, that you would do it because this is who you are. You're gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger and you're abounding in love. This is not a compliment to God. This is an indictment. Jonah's angry. And then look at verses four and five, but the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Don't answer Jonah. Don't answer. And then it says in verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down at a place. What's the word? Next. East of the city. We'll come back to that. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Very interesting. Now, in the Bible, east often refers to something that is east of something. Very, very clear. But most times, east in the scriptures, is used as a metaphor for moving away from the center of God's heart. 
Think of Adam and Eve leaving the garden. They headed east, the scriptures say. Cain kills his brother Abel and then runs east of the city. The story of the Tower of Babel begins with the phrase, and the people moved eastward. East of Eden is a phrase not of beauty, but of disconnection from the center of God's heart. And so we have Jonah pictured here sitting east of the city. Where is God's heart? In the city. Jonah's east of it. Beautiful. And it says there he made some shade for himself. He built a tent to sit under. And then it says, and he he sat and watched what would happen to the city. Now, some of you are like this. We're all like this to some degree every now and then. This is the part of Jonah that wants to see, even though Nineveh has turned a corner, he wants to see them fail. He has this desire somehow, and if he was sitting with a counselor, the counselor would say, what is that? What is that thing in you that wants people to fail? Let's talk about that. And he's sitting east of the city, wanting to see what would happen to it. Look at verse 7, or verse 6 and 7. The Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, it says, God provided a scorching east wind. I mean, God's messing with Jonah here. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. This is the section, if you want to just circle it in your chapter, this is the irony of the story. There's irony here. The first piece of irony, sorry, that was rough. We'll edit that. Um, The first piece of irony is, although destruction is a repeating, looping theme throughout the book, There's actually no destruction other than the vine. The only destruction that occurs in the story is this vine that God gave Jonah. Destruction came not upon Nineveh, but upon something that had become very important to Jonah. A vine. An insignificant piece of God's creation. And then, another piece of irony here in verse 9, but God said to Jonah, Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Jonah was mad at God's mercy towards Nineveh, But he was also mad that God would not give him mercy. He was mad that God lavished mercy on the people of Nineveh, but angry at God that he withheld his mercy on him. It's irony. It's it's the part about human nature where we all sort of think that we're normal. Are you with me on that? Like we all think what we're doing and saying is perfectly logical. And so sometimes we're blind to our own, like we're, we're a living contradiction, but we don't know that. So God is pushing Jonah in this direction. And then in verses 10 and 11, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, which again is something quite meaningless, though you did not tend it or make it grow. So you didn't even do anything to get this vine. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. So in verse 10, again, this is a lot of heavy stuff, but God is essentially teaching Jonah the same mercy that the Ninevites did not deserve. 
is pictured in this vine that you did not make or grow or deserve yourself. So it's a teaching moment for him. And then in verse 11, which we'll put on the screen so we can sit here for a moment. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that? What are the last two words? Great city. Now, I've always read verse 11 and have fixated on the, the last question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? That has driven me as a pastor for a while. But some new things that I'm learning come from the first part of the verse. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. So here's the breakdown. The city is, next slide, people conflicted, influential. This is what God is saying when he breaks down for us. There's 120,000 people there. Their moral compass is spinning out of control. They don't know their right hand from their left. And they have cattle, which is somewhat humorous, but we'll break that down. So let me just outline this for you uh, over the next few minutes. The city, when God says, should I not be concerned about that great city? Some versions have that at the very beginning. The first thing he says about the city is that the city is made up of people. Now, when we think city, we think buildings, transit, parks, infrastructure, and so forth. This is not God's concern. When God talks about city, it's about the people. So the city is people. Why is the city great? Because there's people there. Now, he says 120,000. Now, numbers in the Old Testament can go either way. That could be literal. It could be just the men. It could be just a number. But what God is saying is there's a lot of people there. And uh, to quote Tim Keller, the city is home to more image of God per square foot than anywhere else. That's a great line. And so God is teaching Jonah this, like, look, if you go to Nineveh, the whole lot of image of God's running around. And what makes it great in God's eyes is the people. There's people there. You know, Jamie's leaving us. He and his wife are starting a church. And uh, I said that like it was a bad thing. Um, they're going to be starting Tri-Cities Church in 2012. We're very excited about that. We're partnering with them financially and prayerfully and all of that. Uh, and so in the process, since December is his last month here, I'm interviewing people to fill his spot. And it's a very interesting journey because it's, um, you, you have to talk about there's lots of people here. And the thing about where we live and where our church is, that everybody's not the same either. The, the city is full of all kinds of people. Um, and Metro Atlanta, for that matter, is a very, very eclectic uh, mix of people. And when we're talking to them, these people, about working here, my number one concern as the lead pastor here is that this person, whoever it is that comes in and fills the spot, has a very deep passion for people and is okay with lots of people. And when one of them asked me over the phone, this was one of the earlier interviews, uh, he said, what would you see would be a negative on my end if I were to come? And I said, if you don't like people, it's not going to be good for you. 
And even deeper into that, if you don't like people that aren't all the same, it's not a good place for you. Because I will not, as the lead pastor, hire somebody that doesn't like people. I don't care how talented they are. And Jonah's concern had been, again, for a pretty insignificant piece of God's creation, this vine, while God's deepest concern for Nineveh was his most cherished creation, which was people. So when we talk about, back to the sticker, when we say things like serve the city, we are not talking about fix the transit system, although that would be awesome if you could do that. That's not what we're talking about. And we're not talking about uh, just infrastructure and fixing and improving infrastructure, although that's an outcropping of service. But we are talking first and foremost about people, serving the people who live and work in the places we inhabit. Because the city to God is not whatever it is that we think it is, it's people. It's people. Which means the city goes anywhere. Some of you who are our uh, suburban friends, the great thing about that is your cul-de-sac, I haven't said that word in years or since first service, uh, is your city because there are people there. And the city is about people. And when we say serve the city, we're talking about the people that make up this great city. But the second thing God says about Nineveh and cities in general is that they are conflicted places. They cannot tell their right from their left. So part of this is a moral compass that isn't spinning very well. And part of this is just that the city is always full of opposing ideas. The city itself is an ironic collection of people. It, do, it struggles to find its center. There's no clear direction of a city other than money. That's it. No city has a mission statement, and even if it does, it's just lying to you. Like you don't enter Atlanta and there's a billboard that says, Welcome to Atlanta, we exist too, and then it lays out its mission. It doesn't have that because it, it can't. It, it's, it's made up of a collection of people that oftentimes contradict one another. So that's why you have uh, in your building or in your neighborhood all different views of life, money, of relationships, and you name it. It's a contradiction. We, uh, one of the things that I've been learning, you know, I've lived here almost five years, and again, this is just me, so maybe you're not, maybe this won't resonate. But again, remember, I'm a pastor too, so I'm here, you know, I'm here for a reason uh, as well. But this has been our journey here. We have moved from the city being a place that is very cool to a place that is very difficult. It used to be really cool, and there's some cool parts about, I mean, there's great things about living here, but it's moved from that to being, this is very hard as a, as, as a pastor. Like when we moved into our building, we thought, let's take the hill. Let's serve people, love people, affect people. And we have often found that that hill has taken us through the years. 
See, part of maturity for me has been walking away from this is a great city because of this neighborhood and that club and this part of town and this sort of thing that we have going on from this is a very hostile place. It's, you know, people come and visit us and they say, it's so cool you live here. And we're like, you know, it's not. I mean, we love it. We chose to raise our kids here. And we will, we'll, we'll die here. But it's not cool. It's very hard. Because it doesn't have, it doesn't have a direction. You're just one of a million voices. And it's hard. But for God, that seems like a great place to do ministry. It's a great city, Jonah, because it's completely confused. So go there. It's fantastic. There's a movement in ministry to do urban, I mean, to do, you know, churches in urban settings and because it's so cool. And I tell them it's not, it's really not that cool. And when my suburban pastor friends are complaining about the suburbs, they have a long list of why it's, you know, ungodly. I let them finish and then I say, that sounds like a mission field to me. Why don't you stay there? Because you'll get over very quickly the coolness of a city, and then you will be buried in its difficulties. And that may not resonate with you, but I understand that. Pastoral moment. But I resonate resonate with this verse because of that truth. And maybe Jonah didn't want to go there because of that. It's just too difficult. No one cares. And so, the city is people, the city is a conflicted place, and the city is influential. This is about the cattle statement. I know you were wondering, why in the world does God care that there are cows running around Nineveh? But you have to remember, this is an agrarian culture, and so to say there are many cattle as well is to pinpoint, there's a lot of business there. There's a lot of influence there. It's a picture of economy. And cities are upstream, Whatever happens in a city happens elsewhere. That's why Paul wanted to plant churches in cities. He's dying to get to Rome. Why? Because as Rome goes, what? The whole world goes. And so cities, they sit uphill, and everything that happens rolls down into the surrounding areas. And so when God says, oh, and they have a lot of cows... It's not that God just loves cows. He's making a statement about there's, there's power there. It's collateral there. There's influence there. And so I want my kingdom to come in that place. That's what he's saying. And then he closes with the question, should, should I not be concerned about that place? So God sees this kind of environment a place that has a lot of people, a conflicted culture, an influential culture. He sees that kind of environment as a great place for his kingdom to come and a great place for transformation and renewal to happen. And so our prayer, back to the beginning, is to see God's kingdom bring transformation and renewal to our city. So how do we do that? Well, I don't know, actually. Because it's hard. Um, and never, 
in my career as a pastor, has this been more um, palpable to me than now? It's just very hard. And we're, you know, we're, a, I, I would say that CCB, of the three churches I've worked at in my nearly 18 years of doing this, is my favorite. So I, I, I love it. And there's so many things about CCB that I tell everybody. Um, but I, I would be lying to you to say that there are moments, that there aren't moments where I wonder if it'll all just blow away. Because that is the fate of most churches. And it's scary. And it makes it harder because I know it's the South, but Atlanta is actually pretty, it's a dark place. And yeah, there are churches all throughout the city that run thousands and thousands of people, but it's a drop in the bucket of a skyline that's 11 miles from north to south filled with neighborhoods and people. And so oftentimes I don't know what to do other than write sermons and pray and serve people. That's, that's all I know. And I think the progression in ministry is that you find out the longer you're in ministry, the less you know. Wait, you know, I don't know. It's, I know this sounds depressing. I'll, I'll bring it up a notch. <laughs> Quote the raven no more. All right, here we go. Uh, but I do have some steps that I feel like are so good for us to take. And one, and this seems so Mickey Mouse, but it's not. It's so powerful. It's at the root. But just more prayer for the city. Uh, I emailed some of my friends that work at these big places in the city, these other churches that are very big, and I happen to know some people there. And I emailed them a couple months ago, and I said, look, in 2012, I, I want to host a gathering just of pastors in the city uh, in our building once a month just to pray for the city and also to pray for the churches that are struggling and working and striving. And honestly, to my amazement, they all said, we're in and we'll bring our staff. So it's this, uh, it's this thing for me, just again, trying to keep my ecumenical street cred up to a good level, inviting people from other traditions and other uh, churches to come in and simply just do what God has always called us to do. And that's just pray for his kingdom to come. I also mentioned that a couple of months ago, I mentioned that I, I have this personal vision, although that doesn't always come true, is to for CCB to be this place that involves itself in church planting because the future of urban ministry, as we know, is uh, smaller, faster, more local communities in the neighborhoods within the city ministering to those people. And so I have a personal passion to see us plant a church in the urban core of Atlanta every two years, which is the more I say that, the more frightening that is. And our first one, of course, is Tri-Cities, which Jamie and Stacey will be doing in 2012. Um, and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I, I hate to say that they'll teach us a lot at their own expense, but we'll learn a great deal. Cool story about Tri-Cities very quickly. Uh, Jamie, back in the days when he was a youth pastor, um, we all used to be youth ministers, and we were gods. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> he, uh, the church he worked at, Corinth Christian Church, uh, or as he says, Corinth. Um, anyway, so 
It's out in Loganville. Where's Loganville for those of you who are local Atlantans? Um, and they just turned 150 years old as a church, which I don't know of any church that lasts that long, you know. Uh, and they turned 150, so they said, we're going to give our offering away to some mission um, for 150, 150th offering. We're going to give away money, all of our offering to a mission. And they chose the Tri-Cities Church, which is amazing. And this past weekend, that church gave Tri-Cities, which isn't even off the ground, by the way. They've had one meeting in their home uh, to even talk about uh, what's happening. Uh, that church gave them over $16,000 this weekend, uh, which puts the pressure on us, by the way. Um, <laughs> the mothership, I mean, we've got to give more than that. And so, uh, plus, they let them know that they will be supporting them monthly as well. Which, again, for me, as someone who is on the other end of it, is interpreting this and many other events like this as a confirmation of what we're doing. That Jamie and Stacy are not only following God's lead, but God's kingdom is coming through them. And you guys may not know much about the Hapeville East Point College Park communities where they live and will plant this church, but churches don't plant there. And so we felt like we'll do it. The last thing, uh, back to the sticker, serve the city. Serve the city, again, is about people, but it is also about geography. It is about neighborhoods. It is about communities where you live. And the problem with serve the city at CCV has been, since its beginning, has been a stage-driven initiative. We stand up, we say we're going here and going there, we're doing this or that, and then we sign people up, and then we hope people come, and then we do some sort of service project. But we were just on staff retreat last week, last week from Wednesday to Friday, and our best session was the Serve the City session. Uh, and we talked about what to do and what to change in 2012 and beyond for Serve the City. And it kind of goes like this. Again, this is very rough cut coming off staff retreat. But the thing about CCB is if we put a map up in the office and put thumbtacks where all you guys live, we almost have every neighborhood covered within, within in town and also many of them outside of the city as well. We also have small groups that are meeting in many of those communities. And so what we would like to do in 2012 is twofold. One, is to start quarterly gatherings with all of the small groups in a particular part of the city, mainly so that you can look at other people and say, I didn't know you lived here. So you're meeting with six or 12 people you know, regularly, but once a quarter, 40, 50 people come together that sort of live in your community, and you can get to know people. You know, how you doing? I didn't know you lived here. I live over here. What small group are you in? Because mine's kind of lame. I might run to your group. You know, whatever. You have all that opportunity. But to put people together in those larger communities based on geography. And then we want to raise up within every neighborhood that we have or every larger community that we represent within this church, raise up a serve the city leader for that community. And at those quarterly gatherings, not only is there barbecue and whatever, but there is also this collective mission to serve our neighborhoods. Which means... It's no longer healthy for me to stand up and say, we're going to take the hill by adopting this school when you have no interest in that. But maybe where you live, there are some things and some places and some people within your community that the church of Christian Church Buckhead that lives in that community can meet the need. And so we will raise up people to essentially take a look at 
all the different places where we are and represented and to serve those parts of the city. Which is a nice way of saying it doesn't matter where you live now. CCB happens everywhere. And I don't know how quickly that'll happen, uh, but sooner than later, hopefully. Let me close with this quote uh, from a book that I read a few years ago called Sabbath in the City. It's written by two people, so I don't know uh, who this is attributed to, but it, it goes like this. We've learned that urban ministries love their cities. They have a heart for the city. And they see the city primarily as something, not primarily as something to be fixed, maybe like Jonah saw Nineveh, or as a problem to be solved, but as a gift and as a living organism that by its very nature magnifies both creativity and deviance. And for this reason, the authors say, excellent urban ministries learn how to minister, and this is so important, with their cities rather than merely in or to their cities. Jonah went to Nineveh to talk to them, to bring God's kingdom to them, to yell at them. But that's unsuccessful. The kingdom comes when we live with, when we minister with the people we live around. Not to, but with. And so I just, uh, once again, the question at the end, should I not be concerned about this great city? The answer to that question, of course, is yes, but it's defined for us. And it's an obvious answer if we know the scriptures fairly well. Of course he would be concerned because there's people there and there's a directionless system there. And there's also influence. And God likes to be in those places. And he calls us to be in those places. And he calls us to take his kingdom to those places. But the answer that isn't given, that's quite understood all throughout scripture, is that he's concerned about that great city because as we know in the future, He sends his son to the world to die for everyone. And as we take communion each week and huddle up around the tables and eat the bread and drink the juice, it is, and I said this last week and I'll say it again, it ought to be a reminder for us that there's not one person you will ever meet for whom Christ did not die. Not one. And so to take part in this ancient ritual of eating the bread and drinking the juice is to be reminded physically and as a community that God loves the world all of it, and that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on its behalf, to be the final and and most effective and the only effective sacrifice for the sins of the world, and to bring salvation to places where no one ever thought it would end up. And so I'll, uh, I'll lead us into communion with a time of prayer, and then at your own pace, you can move to one of the four tables in the front of the back. And, um, and also, if there's something we can pray for you about, I know there's a prayer card in your bulletin. You can put that in the offering buckets uh, as well. And then we'll sing on our way out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Um, I thank you for this church, which has, through the years, given its energies to not just worshiping you, but loving neighbor and And God, help us to 
take that a step further and learn how to uh, serve the city. The people that live around us in our neighborhoods and in our buildings, God, that we would see them as people that you care about. And God, give us the strength to stick to that mission, to pray the prayer that your kingdom comes. And teach us to want that and desire that. God, give us strength for the journey of, of loving your people and, and seeing them as you see them. And give us the grace as we move forward. God, thank you for the victories uh, of Tri-Cities Church and just the, the confirmation that you're moving and, and we're not forgotten. And be with us as we take the bread and the juice and let it be an encouragement, an exhilarating reminder that you died for us, which is hard for us to understand. And so we pray all these things in your name. Amen.